Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here to the Houghton Wesleyan Church as we come to praise our God and Father. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to him.
Father, you are all we have. All we have is Christ, and you are our life. We acknowledge that apart from you, we have nothing. We praise you for your great love that reached down into our darkest night and called us to you. We thank you that you love us as we are, and that you call us to be more like you through your strength. Father, we are unworthy, and yet you count us as worthy, and we praise you. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's scripture comes from Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52, and you can find the scriptures on page 969 of your pew Bibles. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught every fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets and threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In the 40th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, he ends by that chapter, that section, by saying, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I believe, I'm convinced, that God wants his people to soar on wings like eagles. As individuals and as a church. I'm convinced that God's plan for his people is not a a low-level sort of uh, eking out a spiritual existence in this world. God wants us to be people who soar on wings like eagles. He has so much more for us than most of us can fathom or imagine. And we tend to live so far below God's plans and dreams for us. And there are probably lots of reasons why this may be true, but one of them, I think, has to do with with our inability to understand and believe that life is complex. And that people are complex. We, We are so enamored with putting people into categories and putting people into into uh pigeonholes and understanding people and, and putting them into boxes. That we miss so much of what life is about. You know, we do this with all kinds of things with people. You know, we, we look at people, we talk to people, we, you know, we kind of judge people about you know, their political views, their theological perspectives. 
maybe where they were born, how old they are, where they were educated, maybe their, their perspective about on social issues. And once we find out some of those things about people, the very next thing we do is to say, okay, we figured out what this person says about this. And so everything now that comes up, we think to ourselves, we know how they're going to respond. And and there's a sense of security in that for us in our relationships with people. Because we, we have people figured out. And then, out of the blue, these people do something completely contrary to what we thought they should do and what they would do. And so you're in a circumstance where a person who is overtly Republican says, that Democrat has a really good idea. Or someone who's overtly a Democrat and says, that Republican has a good idea. Or you hear, you hear someone who is, who is fully embracing Calvinist theology say that Arminian idea is a good one. Or a Wesleyan identifying with the Baptist issue of theology. And, our, and it feels as though sort of our foundations are shaken in our relationships and our ability to understand people. And, and we, we feel a little bit insecure because now these perfect little boxes that we had placed people in don't work anymore. And we come to see that life and people are so much more complex than we are willing to admit. But here's what we discover when we read the scriptures. is It's not just that life and people are complex. Life and people are complex because God is complex. And we tend to think that we put God into a box, we, we figure out, we figured out God, and then we just sit back and relax. And we know exactly how God's going to do things, we know exactly what God's going to do next, and how God has done things in the past, and we figured him out. But the scriptures keep telling us again and again and again that God is so much bigger than that. But it's hard for us to grasp that, to live with the tensions and the paradoxes that we continually see in the scriptures about who God is, about who we are, and how we live out our faith. And what it means to be a Christian. In his new book, The Bible Made Impossible, Christian Smith talks about the various ways in which the evangelical church interprets and uses scripture. And he really makes some good points and things that we need to hear. But the basic central premise of his, of his book is that the Bible is impossible. And he makes that statement because he says when you read the scriptures, there are so many mutually exclusive statements in the scriptures that both of them can't be true. And if both of them can't be true, but they're in the Bible, then the Bible must not be trustworthy. But what you discover as you read the scriptures is is that as this reviewer I was reading about said, that Smith misses the whole point. Because the scriptures are are written to us and and are written by human beings and the inspiration of God in a way that our finite minds can just begin to grasp the infinite God. How do you put into words infinity? We do the best that we can. But it means that there are no boundaries and there are no borders to the understanding. And actually, instead of it feeling like, as some people say, a book of nonsense or something we ought to be embarrassed about. Rather, it is this multifaceted diamond that helps us understand who God is. And subsequently, who we are as children of God. And what it means to be followers of God. The theologian 
Elton Trueblood once said, if a man wants to avoid the disturbing effect of paradoxes, the best solution is to avoid the Christian faith altogether. Because it's all about paradoxes. It's all about these things that we hold in tension. And I think one of the more profound tensions that we wrestle with in the church is this idea of, of trying to figure out the old and the new. The past and the present. It's a difficult thing for us to grasp and the church has wrestled with it through the centuries and particularly the modern church because it's, it's been so divisive. I saw Calvin Hobbes' cartoon recently where Calvin says to you know, his little tiger Hobbes, Mom and Dad drive me crazy. It, you know, they don't understand me. I don't understand them. It's hopeless. I'm related to people I don't relate to. And there's something of that in the church. You know, we're, we're connected to each other in Christ, and yet it feels like we just don't relate to each other anymore. And this is one of those issues. And there are a number of, of ways that we might approach that. One solution is to just ignore it. Let's just go our separate ways. We'll just do you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Let's act like there's, there's, there's no difference. But that doesn't work. Probably the most common solution is we just fight about it. You know, we, we judge each other. We condemn each other. And we slowly tear apart the church. And we see that happening all over the place. Church is being ripped apart by this issue of old and new. I think the solution that we need is for the people of God to step up in a spirit of courage and a spirit of love. And rather than running from this issue, embrace it and say, what does God want to say to us through our difference of opinion? What does God want to say to us as a people of God in the midst of this tension? Because what we're really talking about is the character of God. How God works in this world. How God relates to us and how he wants us to relate to each other. When we read the scriptures, we find that God God loves to, to remind his people that they need to remember the old ways that God has worked in the past. You read the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Again and again and again, God says, remember. He tells the Israelites, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. That ought to affect how you live. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I separated the waters and you walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember how I I took care of you in 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 the desert. Remember how I led you into the land of Canaan and established you as a people. Remember, remember, remember. We, we need to remember the past. God also identifies himself as, as how he's worked in the past. And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Moses is standing at the burning bush, the first encounter with God, and he says, who are you? This is how God identifies himself. He identifies himself with how he's worked with people in the past. And God says through the prophet Malachi, you need to understand that when it comes to these these issues of life, I do not change. The way I've worked in the past is the way I work. And you need to see that. 
This is why God established all these festivals for the people of Israel, so that they would remember what he's done in the past. You know, Passover is a reminder of him bringing them out of Egypt. And the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths is a reminder of how God cared for them in the desert. And the Day of Atonement of how God has has rescued them and, and saved them from their sins. And on and on, the festivals. And, and that's why the early church fathers said, we need some Christian things to help us remember. And one of the most significant things they designed was the church calendar. The church calendar is all about the, the life of Jesus and the work of God through him. So it begins at Advent, where the people where we prepare for the coming of Christ, just as the Israelites prepare for the coming of Christ. We move into the season of Christmas, where we celebrate the incarnation, Christ being born in human flesh to be the Savior of the world. And then we move to Epiphany, where Christ reveals himself as the Son of God, and reveals himself that he has come for all people, not just the Jews. And we move into the season of Lent, which begins this, this Wednesday. This is a time of, of reflection upon the passion and the, and the suffering and the death of Christ. And that he does all of that for our sins. And then we come to that great day of Easter. Where we celebrate the resurrection. Christ's power over death and conquering death. And the next 50 days are all about the Easter and, and the, the promise of eternal life. And then we get into the season of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and the church is, is born and the whole rest of, the, of the, the season is about celebrating who we are as the church, as the people of Christ. You know, I didn't grow up practicing, thinking about the church calendar. And I suspect some of you haven't either. But I, and I understand that, you know, we may have negative feelings about it, but how can we feel negatively about something that helps us remember Christ? You know, how, can, how can we feel negative about something that is simply trying to help direct our attention to Christ and all that he's done for us and in this world? I'm always intrigued by people who are unhappy with me because we spend more time thinking and celebrating Christian holy days than we do civic holidays. But many churches are much more in tune to civic holidays than we are to the church holy days And yet the holy days are just simply helping us to remember what God has done and what he's done for us in Christ. Here's the thing, you know, thinking about the past, as wonderful as that is, and as much as we need to connect to that, if all you think about is the past, then you never live in the present. You're only thinking about what's happened. You're not thinking about what's happening. And you can, can easily turn into... You know, these rituals and and things that God's given us can easily turn into ritualism. And the traditions into traditionalism. And it can create a sense of stagnation in our lives because we're only looking backwards. And God doesn't want us to be stagnant. And that's why the scriptures tell us not only that God wants us to think about the things past, the things that are old. He also loves to talk to us and remind us and show us and reveal to us. And to do the new things in order to energize our stagnant hearts. God is always talking about new things. Prophet Jeremiah says the time is coming, God says, when I am going to to bring a new covenant to Israel. The Psalms declare numerous times, sing a new song to the Lord. The prophet Isaiah says, forget about the things of the past. 
because I'm doing a new thing among you. God is never willing for us to settle for the status quo. He he does not want us to just be stagnant. He wants us to soar. And God wants to do new things in our lives. It's so important that we look for the new things that God wants to do. And of course, just as thinking about the old can lead to problems, so can thinking about the new. Because we have a tendency to worship the new. We live in a culture that worships the new. And we're always being told, if you don't have the newest product, then what you have is kind of a waste of time. It's no good. You go into an electronic store, you walk out with a computer. The minute you walk out the door, it's already outdated. It's probably outdated sitting on the shelf. Right? I mean, the same way with televisions and all the other things that we do. You buy a new car, you drive it off the lot, it's outdated. Clothing. We're continually being told you need new clothes, new styles, new fashions. Now, let me say this. There are reasons for that. And there are times where new fashions are the right thing to do. I was trying to find my, a copy of my senior picture from high school. It was probably a good idea I didn't find it. Just, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to get sick. But, you know, the reason I was finding it is because I, I was, my, my picture was in a powder blue leisure suit. Not exactly like this one, but sort of. Now, this is something that needed to be done away with. It needed to be replaced with something new, and we got away from the leisure suits pretty quickly. But I suspect a number of you wore leisure suits. You know, but we, we worship the new. We're always looking for the newest, the hottest, the fastest, and the church falls into that trap. You know, we fall into the trap of if we're not on the cutting edge of everything, then we're just not relevant. If we're not into the newest fad, then we have no way of connecting with the people around us. It's all about newer, faster, better. And certainly we need to to think about the new things. But we can become so enamored with the new that we worship the new. And all that matters is that it's new. It doesn't matter if it's good. It just needs to be new. And all of us are susceptible All of us in one way or another are susceptible to either ignoring the past because we're all about the new or being closed off to the new because we're all about the past. It's hard for us. Change is hard. Now, I've discovered through the years that change is so difficult for us unless we are the ones who initiate the change. And then we look at people and say, how can you not want to do this? This is a great idea. I thought of it. It's awesome. But as soon as we're on the other side of it and somebody else's change, we're resistant. And it doesn't matter if it's change about the new or change about the old. Change is hard for us. We like our patterns. We, we like our patterns of life, our patterns of thinking, our patterns of seeing, our patterns of doing. And again, whether that pattern is focused on the new or it's focused on the old, it doesn't matter. We like patterns. It gives us a sense of security. What we forget is that everything that is old was at one time new. And everything that's new someday is going to be old. It reminds me of the parable I read years ago about a a tribe of people living in a valley where the, the grass was green and the stream was wide. 
and the, the game was plentiful. And they had a great existence, and, and, and they were blessed. And In fact, they were so blessed that they began to grow and multiply that all of a sudden they began to realize that the grass wasn't green enough, and the stream wasn't wide enough, and the game was depleted. And so there were some, some young heroes in that tribe who said, we've heard that just over the next mountain, the grass is greener and the stream is wider and, and there's plenty of game and we ought to go. And they went over there and they peeked over the mountain and they came running back breathlessly and said, it's true, it's true, come on, let's go. But there was a, a group of people in that tribe that was called the Council of the Old Men Who Know. And they said, oh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to leave what we know. You know, we, we don't know how we'd get there. We don't know how long it would take. We don't know, really don't know what it's like even when we would get there. Now, well, let's just stay here. And that's what they do. And until eventually all the resources of that valley are depleted and they begin to die off. And the few that were left finally said, we've got to do something. And they made the trek and climbed over the mountain and settled in that valley. And it was everything they thought it would be. And they got into that valley, this new valley, and they began to, to grow and multiply and expand until they realized one day that that grass wasn't green enough anymore and that stream wasn't wide enough anymore and the game wasn't enough anymore. And there were some new young heroes in that valley who said, we've heard that just over the next mountain, the grass is greener and the stream is wider and, and the game is plentiful. We ought to go. And you know what happened? Those original heroes that helped them settle in that valley had now become the council of the old men who know. And they said, no, let's just stay here. We're all susceptible to not wanting to change whatever perspective we have. It sort of reminds me of of sitting down with the plans of building a skyscraper a hundred stories high. And you look at these plans and it's an awesome design and it's beautiful and, and it's, it's just going to be so wonderful. And, and you build the foundation and there are people that look at this foundation when it's completed and it's looking at that and thinking, this is the most awesome foundation that has ever been built. This foundation is deep, it's strong, it's perfect. Why do we need anything else? Let's just leave the foundation and, and call it good. That's all we need. And then on the other hand, you have a group of people who are so enamored with the top of the building and the intricacies of it, the beauty of it, that they say, why do we want the rest of the building? Let's just build the top. And neither group ends up with a building. Neither group ends up accomplishing what they were intended to accomplish. And I've come to the conclusion that our struggle... Our struggle with this whole tension and paradox of old and new probably comes back to self-centeredness that more often than not seems to work its way out of us in arrogance. Because we're thinking, I've had this awesome experience with God. Whether it's something that happened in the past or something happening right now. 
But this is the way God has spoken to me. This is the way I understand God. This is the way I hear God. This is the way I encounter God. And it's awesome. And and God has just done so much in me through this way. And I think you would love this. And God could do the same thing in your life through this way. But we so quickly move from this is something that God, that you might want to try, to if you don't try it, if you don't see God this way, then you're wrong. If you don't experience God the way I experience God, then something's wrong with you. And your experience cannot be as valid as my experience. And you see the arrogance creeping into that. What we're really saying is, I know more about how God works than anybody else does. And again, it doesn't matter if we're talking about thinking of new things or old things. It really doesn't make any difference. We like the patterns. We don't like the change. And we like to believe that our way of thinking is the right way. And what we're really saying is, God, this is how I believe you can work. I've designed a box by the way you worked with me. And I don't think you can work any other way. I don't think you can speak to people any other way. And what in essence... We kind of become God. And we're saying, I know more about how to work than God does. Anne Lamott, the author, says she has a lot of people who write to her and speak to her about her ideas of Christianity. And you may or may not agree with those. But people have a tendency to want to say to her that her brand of Christianity is leading her right into the gates of hell. And they'll tell her that. And she has come up with a response to these people. She says, do you know what the difference is between you and God? God never thinks he's you. Because I think sometimes we think we're God. Here's what I've come to to understand. That God likes to work in our lives through surprising ways. God follows patterns. There's no doubt about that. We, we predominantly hear God through certain ways, through ways that of our, are connected to our experiences and our understandings and, and the things that have happened. And that's the predominant way God speaks into our lives, whether that's old or new. But I'm convinced that God also likes to work in surprising ways. Ways in which they're, they're outside of the box that we draw around our experience. And if we aren't open to God working in surprising ways, we're going to miss God. We're going to miss so much of what God has for us. And it's not just going to be tragic, it's going to be catastrophic. Because you can't just close a little bit of your life off to God. If you close some of your life off to God, you will close more and more and more and more of your life off to God. And the box will keep getting smaller. And you'll become more judgmental. I'm convinced that if we aren't able and willing to embrace both the new ways of God and the old ways of God, we will miss so much of God.
what happens with the religious leaders who encounter Jesus. Some of them have know absolutely nothing about how God's worked in the past. And so when God comes and, and he works in the ways that he typically does, they totally miss it. And then you've got a group of people who, who are so enamored with the past that when, when Jesus comes in a way that they don't expect, they miss him. And the results are catastrophic for their lives. Dorothy Thompson was a, a writer in the uh, 30s and 40s. She uh, spent a lot of time in Germany. She became very famous. She was considered, I think, by Time magazine in 1939 as the most influential woman in America next to Eleanor Roosevelt. She was called the first lady of journalism. And she wrote a number of books, had had an amazing life. But she said this. She said, without change, you cannot grow. But without traditions, you can't have civilization. You got to have both. You have to have both. And that's what I love about what A.W. Tozer writes in his book, That Incredible Christian. He says, the truth always has two wings. It's like a bird. And you have these two paradoxes, these two statements in tension that are like two wings on a bird. And so often we try to live with just one wing. And when a bird tries to live with one wing, it just kind of flaps and goes in a circle. Only a bird that soars on wings like eagles. Only that bird, the bird can only fly like that because it's using both wings. And today we are confronted once again with the paradox, the tension of two wings, the old and the new. And if we ever want to soar as individuals and as the church, as people of God, we have to be committed to embracing both. Because God works in our lives and God works in the church and God works in the world through both. And I believe God is looking for people who are fully embracing the old ways in which he has worked and the new ways in which he is working. And I'm convinced that people who do and churches that do are the people and the churches that soar on wings like eagles and become the people of God he created us to be. Are we committed enough to these truths? These truths that are really connected to God's character to be that people. Gracious Father, thank you for your word to us. You know, it's hard for us. We like our boxes. We like the ways, things that make us comfortable. Lord, help us to be willing to let you push us outside of our comfortable zone. What's familiar? Because we want to experience the fullness 
of all that you have for us who soar on wings like eagles. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Shut that off quickly. Surprising things that God does. Well, as you noticed, we have designed the worship order to be a little bit different today. And the reason is because we want to give us as a, a people gathered here the opportunity to experience a few different things than we might normally in this worship setting. And we've, did this, we've done doing the same thing in all the services today, things that are different, kind of switching things around a little bit. But we wanted to have some context, and so that's why we're doing it now. And as I said, God isn't asking us to give up our preferences or to give up the primary ways that he speaks into our lives. But he is asking us to be open to new things, to different things, to surprising things that he may want to say to us. Please stand and sing with us.
seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. There are a few things in the bulletin I want to bring to your attention. Um, tonight, small groups are meeting, and I'm pretty sure Koinonia is meeting as well. I don't see it in the bulletin, but I'm pretty sure it's on the schedule. Wednesday evening, as I mentioned, is the be- Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And that evening, we will ha- host an Ash Wednesday service. This may be one of those things that's new for you, uh, but it's a, it's a new, ancient kind of thing. It's been going on for many centuries. It's an opportunity just to contemplate um, our sins, to remember, as the, as the uh, liturgy says, that we are dust and that uh, God is our Savior and He's come to us in Christ. So we invite you to join us for this service Wednesday night at 6.30. Next Sunday morning is the first Sunday in Lent, and uh, you see a little paragraph in the bulletin about uh, the sermon series that we're going to be looking at in Luke 22 during uh, the six Sundays of Lent. And again, worship next week at 8, 29, 40, 11. I know it is a break weekend, actually the next couple of weekends, but we're going to continue with all three services each of the Sundays. I also want to remind you about the membership class that I'm hosting a week from tomorrow, the 27th. If you haven't yet indicated to me that you'd like to, to be a part of that class, uh, let me know this week and we'll make sure we have materials prepared for you. And as always, there are a number of prayer concerns that uh, we want to lift before our Father as we uh, worship today as well as throughout this week. This time, I'd like to invite the ushers to come and receive our offerings. And let's stand together and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above Heavenly Father, all things come from you. We ask that you would give us grateful hearts as we give back just a bit of all that you have lavished upon us. In your name, amen. You may be seated.
We're going to spend our time, some time praying together as we do each week. And the altar's open if you'd like to use that as your place of prayer. We'll begin our prayer time by praying together in unison the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. So if you'd like to use the altar, please come now. Otherwise, please be seated. Let us pray together the prayer of confession. Merciful God, in your gracious presence, we confess our sin and the sin of this world. Although Christ is among us as our peace, we are a people divided against ourselves as we cling to the values of a broken world. The profit and pleasures we pursue lay waste the land and pollute the seas. The fears and jealousies that we harbor set neighbor against neighbor, nation against nation, even disciple against disciple. We abuse your good gifts of imagination and freedom, of intellect and reason, and have turned them into bonds of oppression. Lord, have mercy upon us. Heal and forgive us. Set us free to serve you in the world as agents of your reconciling love in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayer of confession and for your forgiveness. We pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for every person who is burdened and grieving and struggling today. We know that there are many who are wrestling under the weight of circumstances and pain in this world, and we ask that you would heal every disease. We pray that you would comfort every grieving heart. We pray, Father, that you will help us in our relationships, those relationships that are not what they ought to be. Give us courage and compassion and love to take the first step in working toward reconciliation. And we pray, Father, that it will be evident your spirit is healing and restoring what we thought could never be restored or healed. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. A world of pain, violence, a world of evil and injustice. And we ask that you would bring your grace to bear on this world so that where there is famine and drought and disease, you would bring rain and food and healing. Where there's violence, bring peace. Where there's war, bring stability. Where evil reigns, bring your righteousness and your justice and let it roll down like mighty streams. Father, we thank you for hearing all of our prayers. We thank you for hearing this prayer. We offer it today, Father, in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the crucified one, the risen one, and our returning king, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which now we pray together 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises once more to our great God, who has been our help in ages past and will continue to be our hope for years to come. Hallelujah. 
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.